So anyhow, today we're going to be in the book of Matthew, so if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Wow, I feel like I'm teaching in the closet. It's kind of killer. I can't see anybody, that's why it's weird. So much for that whole, you ever seen that thing, you're supposed to imagine everyone in their underwear or whatever, you know, that <laughs> makes you feel more comfortable? Well, I can't see anyone, so I'm really uncomfortable right now. So, <laughs> totally kidding. So, Matthew chapter 16 um, is going to be our scripture today, and Ken said I could teach about whatever I want, but first I'll say my name's Aaron Wells. Some know me, some don't. Um, I'm the director of missions. I know that's come out. I figure I should probably say that now. Could we get, like, lights up just a little? Because I'm, like, blinded by these, and then there's nothing. It's like, I might fall off the stage. I don't know. It's messing with my equilibrium. You know, who knows? Um, anyhow, and he, he's, uh, he had his baby, so they're, they're there, and he said, Aaron, why don't you come teach on something? And so um, I'm kind of piggybacking on what we taught about last week or what we learned about last week. And, and it's funny, they asked me, what's your topic going to be? And I said, well, I guess I don't really have one, so I'll say church. And that way I can't mess up because it can be anything, so it's perfect. So if you were looking at your, like, bulletin going, what kind of a name is that for a message, church? That's where we go on Sundays and whatnot. That's why it was that way. So anyhow, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of, of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ, verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed on the third day and be raised. Let's pray real quick one more time. Father, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word that it's truth. And we have the opportunity every Sunday and every day, actually, Lord, to come before you and learn about your truth and to be impacted by that. And so I pray today, God, that you would remove me and people would learn from you. Jesus, that the studying that, that went on this week to prepare this would just be one of those things that people would be able to see your heart, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so the reason I thought of church as a topic and why it ended up being one word is because there's... I've been kind of going through this like whole like mind shift and what church really is, I guess, or if that's even possible to say that. But I feel like there's this movement that says to be about church is to be like old-fashioned, I guess, you know. And, and I guess when I say that, I mean to be about church is to be like, to be about the building and, and, and you know, the hymns and all that stuff. Well, that is this caricature, 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 I think that's how you say that word, of what church is, and that's not really church. People have had it wrong for a long time, and the church is all messed up, and now we need to be new and fresh and exciting, and we have to bring all these different ideas and things to that table and make it, make it what church should really be. And, and part of me is like, well, yeah, I guess that sounds good. But two things about that idea bothers me, and the first is that, as we see here, the very first mention of the word church comes from Jesus in chapter 16 of Matthew. 
And when he mentions the word, he specifically talks about it being built on himself. And so the whole idea of church was supposed to start in Jesus Christ. And so I wonder why, if church is supposed to start in Jesus Christ and be about Jesus Christ, why we have to feel as Christians that it's wrong to call ourselves the church. Or that it should, have, it should be changing because the church has been wrong. I wonder that. And, and then I also wonder, like, what gives us the right as people to look at, like, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, and say, or even tens, ten years ago, and say, well, that church did it wrong, and we're going to be better than them. And those are two questions that I've been struggling with for a long time because, you, you know, we're in this age now where, where we have things like Catholic priests. And not to point out this seriously has nothing to do with them. I'm just saying we're in an age where the church is taking some serious um, gunshot wounds in the form of people falling in high positions of authority, people that should have this represent the church, represent Jesus Christ, and they're not doing it. And so people are looking at the church and saying, well, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be a part of that. You guys are all hypocrites. And I don't want to be anything about that. But at the same time, you have churches that have done a lot of good work, and I wonder what gives us the right to point at just the church in general and say, that's wrong, and we're going to be better than that. And so what I wanted to do this morning is to do a bit of research on the idea of church beginning from the first time it was mentioned and try and see if maybe we could gain some ground into what church, I guess, should really look like. And obviously, you know, I'm just one guy. I'm 31 years old. Um, I'm not like I've been around. I'm not the smartest man alive, obviously. I just said that, which would prove it, but, you know. <laughs> but... You know, I'm not the guy. So obviously it's not like you're going to sit and walk away today and go, man, I just totally understand what church is now. It's perfect. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that was my point. I think my point is more that as I've been wrestling with these issues, I think that getting back to the beginning is, is, a, is a starting point for us as believers to decide on what we want to make the church for ourselves. And if we want to be about that thing that we refer to as church. And so I wanted to give us a basis for that. And so... Let me give you a little history before we get into the actual scripture today. Matthew 16, right? We're in this chapter, Matthew 16. We don't know what's going on. Specifically in the book of Matthew, you have several things that have happened, right? In chapter 4, you see the disciples, the first four disciples, James, John, Simon, and Andrew called. And then in chapter um, 9, you have Matthew called. And then in chapter 10, you have the, full, the disciples being mentioned as a group. So this is just particularly for the book of, of Matthew. I'm not... I didn't have time to go and look in every book and tell you where exactly each individual person was called. But that's what we see in the book of Matthew is that Jesus has called his disciples and begun that ministry to his disciples. And once they're with him, and specifically with the disciples, because that's what the conversation in chapter 16 is taking place, it has to do with what he's talking to the disciples about himself and his church. And so the disciples are with him now, right, from chapter 4 on. And so I wanted to look at what happens. In chapter 4, we see many people get healed, right? People are getting healed from sicknesses and diseases and whatnot, and the crowds are starting to gather and follow Jesus. In chapter 5, you see the quote-unquote the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and it's interesting that it says that Jesus taught the people. He gathers his disciples to him, and what does he do? He teaches them. He teaches the crowd. And that continues on to chapter 8. In chapter 8, Jesus continues to heal. He points out great faith in the centurion. We see prophecy fulfilled when he heals Peter's mom. We see that he talks about the cost of following Jesus. We see that he calms the seas. In chapter 9, Jesus continues to heal. 
He explains to people why he came. He didn't come for the people who were well. He came to heal the sick and the hurting and to seek and to save the lost. And then he continues to heal people more and more. He raises people of the dead. He's, he's restoring, people's blind, or restoring people's sight. He's casting out demons, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then in chapters 10 to 16, to summarize that area, he teaches some more. He shows um, of how he is Lord of the commandments, specifically the Sabbath. He heals some more. He casts out another demon. He teaches on being for or against Jesus. You have to make a choice. You can't ride this middle line and say, well, yeah, Jesus is great and all, but I'm still going to be about this. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're not. He tells parables. He explains their meaning. He points to an inability in some places to do works because of people's unbelief. He feeds 5,000, and then he feeds 4,000. He heals more. He continues to answer questions, and he points to another Gentile woman's faith. And so if, you take, if you're looking at chapter 16 and the disciples' experience with Jesus up to this point, you see this about their experience. They saw Jesus teach to crowds, to them, and he taught different ways. It wasn't like he just taught this way. He taught in parables, things they could understand. He expounded on the early principles of the Old Testament. For example, um, you know, the whole idea of lust. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, you shall not look at a woman with lust in your eyes. Well, I say, or, you know, you shall not commit adultery in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, he says in, in those Beatitudes, in that time afterwards, the Sermon on the Mount, quote-unquote, you shall not look at a woman with lust in your eye, because if you do even that, then you will also be committing that same act of adultery. And so he expounds on those scriptures. He's bringing that level of, of teaching to the people. We see Jesus was about healing. That's obviously. I mean, you can't even count how many people he healed. It's interesting. He points to great faith in two Gentile believers, not Jews, and I found that interesting that he points to these two Gentiles and says, these people have great faith. That's an example of what it is to really believe in me. They learned about the cost of following him. They see, they've seen people raised from the dead. They've seen demon-possessed people be cast out. They've seen thousands of people be fed. And they've also seen the seas calmed in like these raging storms. And so they go through that whole time with Jesus, and now you can, if you could picture, I actually went to Israel when I was just out of college. And if you're in Israel, you got the Sea of Galilee. It's amazing. Beautiful green, you know, lush, like sound of music type stuff, you know. There she is singing, you know, frolicking, the hills are alive, you know, she's loving it. I mean, that is seriously like the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful. So you go to the Sea of Galilee, and then if you continue north, it's like you go up into this mountainous region, you come to the area of Caesarea Philippi, and it's, it's amazing. It's like kind of a high mountainy type thing. I mean, I don't know if I could say this. I'm going to say it, though, just because it sounds kind of funny. But to me, it was like the Aspen of Israel, you know? <laughs> like, the, you, I don't know if you got that correlation. But I've been to Aspen, so, hey, I did. Um, but <laughs> it's beautiful. There's like this. There, but the one thing about it, if you go there, it's like I, it was the major place for idolatry and idol worship. Specifically, they had a shrine built there for Caesar. And so it's interesting to me that Jesus would lead his disciples on this trek through the whole country for these years he's been with them. And he, be, he goes up and he takes them away, not to like the retreat center. You know, he doesn't take them away to summer camp at Camp Tadmore where they're roasting marshmallows and having a good time. He takes them to like the center of idol worship. It's like he takes them to a Marilyn Manson concert. And he's like, hey guys, let's hang out outside and have some, you know, we're going to talk. And it's odd to me that he would do that, but I think it's because specifically it was time for them to, to put in. What is it, to put up or shut up? 
It was time for them to make a decision about what they believed. They had seen Jesus Christ do all this stuff. I mean, like, just just amazing, blow-your-mind things. I mean, imagine, like, walking along, you're cruising with Jesus, you know, talking, he's telling you stuff. You're like, whatever, Jesus, cool, man. We're buddies, you know, tight. We're like this, man. You know, what's up? Me and you. Having a good time. You're doing your thing. He walks by, sees some dude blind, bumping into walls and stuff. He's like, come here, bro. Go a little closer. You're good, man. And that is a really paraphrasing that whole deal. But <laughs> everyone's like, is that actually in Scripture? Yes, he does use mud, eyes, blind sight thing. But he heals this guy. I mean, can you imagine just walking along, and the next thing you know, the guy's like, hey, I can see. You're like, whoa, dude, that guy was totally blind a minute ago. Go figure on that. I mean, imagine like, I don't know. I don't know if you guys like to barbecue. Obviously, I'm a bigger guy. I like to eat. <laughs> Obviously. But, I mean, barbecue, you can imagine having a barbecue. you got, like, 50 people. I've never had that many, but 50 people at the house. you got, like, two steaks and, like, three potatoes. And you got, like, 50 people, and you're like, okay, what do I do now? I don't know. Jesus is like, don't worry about it, man. Just start cooking and go for it. And he prays. Boom. Next thing you know, it's like, hey, dude, two steaks turns into 50. Wow. That's, wait a second, 50. There's extra. Now, that is some sweet stuff. I mean, is he like a magician pulling stuff out of his sleeves? Or It's amazing. I mean, imagine that was their experience with Jesus. They saw all this amazing stuff. And now he takes them away from all like the, the pizzazz, the, like the, the, the flashiness, the, the oh, look at Jesus. He's healing people. Oh, he's teaching these amazing things. Jesus is doing all this cool stuff, and I'm with him. Yeah, right on. Jesus is in the boat. He's raging, you know, and he's just like, be calm. And everything's cool, man. Jesus is just rad. Yes. And then they're just like cruising. Like, where are we going now, Jesus? We're going to go to the place where the idols are. Okay, whatever you say, man. You can do something cool up there. I know. Jesus is awesome. You're going to destroy it. Yes. And they get there. And what does Jesus ask him there? In verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus comes to this district in Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, you know, hey, guys, I got a question for you. Why don't you come on in here, fellas? Come on, get a little closer. Circle. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And not who do people say that I am. Who do people say that the Son of Man is specifically? Because Jesus was what? The Son of Man, the Son of God. And so he says, hey, guys, let me ask you a question. Who do people say that I am? And so, you know, people are talking, obviously. He's been around for a couple years now. I mean, thousands of people follow him around, running from different sides of gigantic lakes to the other, just to hear him speak. And you consider this background, and when you start to think of the Jewish nation, right, this is the people who were what? They were oppressed. They were, at this time, living in occupation. The whole of Jewish history had said, Jesus, or God, is going to deliver us, right? Have you guys seen um, Prince of Egypt? You know that song, Deliver Us? Dun, 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 dun. Deliver Us to the prom. You know what I mean? I have kids. Okay, I've seen like 800 times. If you have kids, you, sh- you should have seen it by now. My goodness, it's like a classic. Anyhow, you know, he's like, Deliver Us. That was like their mantra. God is going to send us someone to deliver us. We've been under Roman oppression now for years. It's time for us to be delivered. And then Jesus comes on the scene. 
And he's fulfilling prophecy. He's healing people. And the people are like, well, you know, I know the Messiah is supposed to, like, heal us, kind of, but he's supposed to be like this military leader guy, right? And destroy those Romans. Kill them. And so the people are, are you know, they're, they're talking about this, and it's being discussed. And so Jesus says, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And, and the disciples respond there in verse 14. Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. You know, the people are basically saying, well, he could be a prophet. I don't know. I mean, prophets did crazy stuff like that. You know, I mean, Hosea, you know, marries a, a prostitute and, you know, other guys were like laying on their side. You know, Ezekiel laying on one side for, a, I don't know, it's like 144 days and then cook some food over your own poo. You know, I mean, it was crazy stuff. I know it's kind of funny, but it is. Read Ezekiel, okay? Everyone's like, did he say that? My gosh. They let this guy loose. What are they thinking? But... <laughs> It's in there. <laughs> and, I mean, so they're looking, at, look, they're looking at him going, is he, he could just be one of those guys. But we're not sure exactly what he is. There's still a level of undecidedness. And so Jesus hears that, and he says to them, okay, but let's, let's take this away from the people. Let's forget about all the stuff you've seen and heard. Let's see what you really, what have you learned since you've been with me? But who do you say that I am? And keep in mind that it wasn't but a few chapters ago where he had calmed the sea and the storm and this raging storm and they bowed down and said, you are the Christ. All of them. And so you think it would be like a foregone conclusion. All of those disciples there with him would cry out, Messiah, you are the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. There should have been like this gigantic roar from these guys like, well, duh, Jesus, we've been with you. We've seen what you've done. It's obvious to us that you are the Messiah. But only one person says anything. I mean, that's what we record here. Simon, Simon Peter, a fisherman, replies simply, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, and it's, if you look at that reply, it's, I was reading this, uh, an author by the name of G. Campbell Morgan, and he describes this picture well, where you can just imagine. There's idols all over the place. Who knows if people are bringing their money and dropping coins. Okay, I'll throw some money at this dude. Maybe he'll give me some new clothes. A little over here for crop season. Dink, dink, dink. Right on, man. Let's hook that up. And then in that backdrop... You have Jesus there with his disciples, and Peter responds, you are the Christ. Peter was a Jew. He was raised from his, like, little, little guy. To understand the scriptures, it's funny to me. You know, we, like, for us, it's like, well, are we going to teach our kids? Well, you know, let's try and get them to know the basics, and we'll try and hook them up. And when they get older, we'll try harder. I mean, like, back then, I mean, we're talking, they knew the scriptures, like, you don't want to argue the Old Testament with a Jewish person unless you know the Old Testament. It is part of their upbringing. It is what they know. It is what they understand. It is what they spend a lifetime studying. Peter was waiting. And he knew when he confessed Jesus Christ as the Messiah, it wasn't a small thing. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, you are it. Everything that I have waited for, everything that my mom, my dad, my great uncle, everyone, has waited for, has been you, Jesus, not anyone else, not anything else. 
But you, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Not just man, but the Son of God. And to me, that's just such a beautiful picture of what the cry of our heart should be. I realize not everyone here is a Bible scholar, including me. But I don't think it's something that we should miss as believers that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's what we're waiting for. It's interesting that the Jews were in bondage and they were always waiting to be free. And I can't think of any nation more in the world who is in bondage than our nation. And you name it, we have everything. We have the cheapest gas in the world. We have big screen televisions, not me, not yet, someday. <laughs> we have nice cars, we have nice clothes. Um, we have friendship. We have the freedom to, to say whatever we want, and that goes both ways. It appalls me sometimes to see what people say, it's supposed to be okay. We have everything any person could ever want. And yet, as I look around and I see people on a daily basis, I see we are in bondage to the very thing that's supposed to make us the best nation in the world. And it baffles me how we can't look forward to Jesus Christ coming with excitement. We've missed the boat, so to speak. Peter got it. He understood. He was ready. He was waiting. And I don't know why it would take like them being there to understand that. But I don't understand why even me, like, I don't live a daily basis thinking, man, it'd be so great if Jesus came back today. And I think it's because I, I, I've been fooled, I've been duped by living here. I think it's so great. I have a wonderful wife. I have two kids. I have a job I love. I get to teach every once in a while. Like, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. You know, we'll see. <laughs> I have a nice car. I have an amazing family. And to me, this is as good as it gets. But in reality, it's like, I don't even know how you can compare the two. Um, vomit to top sirloin? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I realize we're not going to be able to see that every day, but I think Peter understood that here. And you see Jesus' response to that, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So God has obviously reviewed, re revealed this to him, and he's hearkened that call. He's understood what Jesus has been trying to get across for all these years. And in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. The word for Peter there is, is um, make sure I don't confuse these two, is Petros. And the word Petros means like a stone, like a small or piece of a rock not speaking of like a gigantic boulder. And he says, upon this rock, and the word for rock is Petra, and that word is for a rock, like a massive rock, like a massive stone, I will build my church. And so we see that he's talking to Peter, and he says, man, Peter, you've obviously seen here what it's really about, and you're going to be part of this establishment we're going to call church. And I think Peter answers that, in 1 Peter 2.5, he sees that for himself. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says, And coming to him as a, to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for, holy, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter didn't think he was it. 
He knew he was part of this living organism called the church that was supposed to be built on top of each other like Lincoln Locks. I played Lincoln Locks. I've actually been trying to get some for the kids. But like Lincoln Locks, they have those little blocks and they build up. You can build these cool little buildings. And it says, upon this rock, specifically Jesus talking about himself, I will build my church. I will build my church upon me. Upon the foundations and principles that I have modeled to you over my lifetime. And that is going to be the basis, the foundation for what church is supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to look like. And you can, you know, I was like, well, maybe that means that it's supposed to be about teaching and about healing and, and about feeding the poor and about doing all these wonderful things and everything like that, because that's what Jesus did, right? We just talked about that. We summed up his entire, you know, four to chapter 16 of what his life was about, and that's what it was about. And we see some of the other authors in the Bible expound upon this. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm horrible as it comes to, like, preparing for teaching. Like, I wasn't ready till this morning, I would say. So as far as, like, getting slides and cool stuff like that, I'm bad. Not good at it. So I'm sorry I don't have it, but if you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it to you now. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Speaking specifically to Christians here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, See, I printed this stuff out wrong, so I'm going to pause real quick on this one. There we go. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended up on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does, that, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descends is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fulfill all things. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of, the ser- of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I think that the problem with church is that it's filled with individuals. I don't think we can point to any system and say, well, the Baptists have done it wrong, or the Calvary chapels have done it wrong, or the Catholics have done it wrong. And, I, and I'm not saying that, there's, that people haven't made mistakes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like this utopian idea that if it's church, it's good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I don't think we can point to a church denomination and say they've done it wrong. We're going to do it right. Because the problem with the church today I don't think is a church. 
Because the church, as Jesus describes it, is about him. The problem with the church is us. The problem with the church is me. The problem with the church is that every person here knows that you're a sinner. And even I know that at times I might be a, hypocr- a little bit hypocr- what is it? Hypoc- hypocritic. Hip- That's a tough word for me right now. <laughs> I really don't know how to say that one. Hypocritic. Uh, hippo. You know, you know what I'm trying to use. Hypocrite, but plural form. Do that for yourself. <laughs> I have no idea how to say that. So anyhow, the problem with me is that I'm that, and also I'm selfish. I put myself first. The problem with me is that I have my own opinions, and I project those opinions on what, what I think church should be. Church should look like I want it to look like because that's what I think church should be about. And that's not always grounded in what the scriptures say. It's grounded in what you feel in your heart. And you think, well, who, if I feel it, man, that's got to be right on. Because my feelings are good. It makes me feel good. The problem is that we, we have issues with doctrine. The problem is that we don't take the time individually to study the word of God. People would rather come and sit and listen to me or fall asleep, depending on what you're doing right now then you would spend any type of serious time trying to find out what God says about anything. It's enough to be taught, not to learn. And so the problem with me, to me with church is that we have gotten away from what Jesus Christ has asked us to do. What did Jesus Christ say to the disciples? He said, follow me. He didn't say, follow Peter. Definitely, he put those people in places of authority to lead. But ultimately, he said, follow my example. That's why, that's why Christians were called Christians back in the day. It was a slam. It was supposed to be like a, a slang term for, oh, you're a Christian. That was a bad deal. You're Christ-like. So the problem with the church is like, you ever heard that phrase, you know, like you point one finger at someone, you point three back at yourself? And one, I don't know where. You know, maybe we should turn. It's like, it's not God's fault. Maybe I'll turn it that way. Yeah, so when you point, don't point like that. Point like this. I don't know. <laughs> but but <laughs> the problem is, is that that's the deal. It's always about someone else. It's always about what they're doing wrong. It's not about me. It's not about me being the problem. And so as I, as, I, as I come to the close here, I think the, the answer to how do we fix the church today, if, if indeed that's the question, is how do we fix individuals? What do we do? And this baffles my mind because people are going to walk out of here today and it's like I've never said a word. Or you'll have that warm, fuzzy feeling for a little bit. And then tomorrow you're back working again. It's Monday. I'm not speaking to you as one who's like, God's a figure. I'm saying this is me realizing that's reality. Of the people here that need to hear this message today, maybe five might walk away really doing something about it. We have a church of, what, close to 300 people now? 
And, and what I hear a lot here, and, I, and I've been at like several churches. Calvary's my background. But what I hear a lot here is that Antioch is just so awesome. We got all these awesome things going, which is great. But the reality is the only thing that's going to keep this church alive and vibrant, as Paul says at the very end there, being fitted together and held by what every joint supplies. Each of you has an individual specific job to fulfill in the church. It's not my job, as, and this is so funny, I can't believe I'm saying this, but don't take it wrong, as the director of missions, it's not Ken's job as your pastor. It's not Brandon's job or Kip's job or, or, or any Kim's job or the children's ministry's job to do your job. It's your part. If the church stinks, it's because we've screwed it up. Not because the church is doing stuff wrong. It's because people stink. Gosh, we just, oh, I know it's me. The thing is, it's what you're seeing. It's you're seeing my own reaction to my problem. And it breaks my heart to look at myself and say, I don't get it right. And I could bring other people down, destroys me. But what's the answer then? The answer is for each of us to do our part. For each person sitting in that gray chair, that's very comfortable, by the way, to do your part. To realize that you are no less important than the person sitting next to you or the person standing up here in front talking to you. Paul specifically said there's different jobs in the church. There's teachers. There's people who work here. There's people who work there. There's some people who have gift of prophecy. We have an awesome worship team. I love it. That's their gift, not mine. <laughs> I'm bad. I don't have that. But there's also individual people. You can encourage the person next to you. You can be the positive influence of Christ in that person's life. Do you think people come to church and leave and really grow just from Sunday? I guarantee you if you talk to every person in this room who's walking with the Lord, there was an individual who touched them on an individual level. And that is why you walk with the Lord today is because someone took the time to do what Jesus Christ asked them to do. And I have men like that in my life. So our job then to make the church turn people's eyes back to Jesus Christ is probably what I should say, is to live godly, to know the word, to sacrifice what you want for what Jesus wants. And obviously the most important thing is to love Jesus. Because that's the core, right? That's the, the, the foundation. I'm over by a minute, and so I'm going to close with this last thought. I typed in, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do, and I typed in, um, what's wrong with the church? I got 74 million, like, hits on Google. I typed in what's right with the church? Nothing. <laughs> so I don't know if that's just not a title people write in, but it's very unbalanced. But this guy writes this. He says, I have a confession to make. I don't like church. I've been a Christian for 30 years, since I was six years old, and I've attended services at churches that were Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, United Methodist, Free Methodist, Presbyterian, both PCA and PCUSA, whatever that is, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, and various denominations that call themselves non-denominational. I've been in some churches where the preacher speaks or spoke in dulcet tones, and others where he'd speak in tongues. 
I've been in churches where the congregation sits in pews and others where they roll on the, in the aisles. <laughs> I've been in churches where people raise their hands in praise and, the, and others where they kept their hand on their wallet. I've been in everything from mega churches in California to house churches in Japan. In other words, I'm no stranger to church. But no matter where I go, there's always one idiot who ruins the experience for me. They think they know more theology than the pastor or believe they would do a better job leading worship than the music minister. They are invariably unfriendly, judgmental, hypocritical, and more than a little bit smug. Every church I go to, I find a fool like that. And so I shop around trying to find one that won't let someone like that join their ranks. But he's always there. No matter what I do, I can't shake him because that guy is me. So I don't have to admit that I don't like church. I'd rather sleep in on Sunday mornings. I'd rather follow my own path. I'd rather excuse myself from public worship until I can get right with the Lord, quote unquote. But I can't do that. Church is where I belong. It continues in a recent interview with Christianity Today, Eugene Peterson explains why the church is necessary. But many Christians would look at this church and say it's dead merely in an institutional expression of faith. But what other church, what other church is there besides institutional? There's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there's sin in the church. But there's no other place to be a Christian except the church. There's sin in the local bank. There's sin in the grocery store. I really don't understand this naive criticism of the institution. I really don't get it. In my writing, I hope to recover a sense of the reality of congregation and what it is. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen to that. Why are we always idealizing what the Holy Spirit doesn't idealize? There's no idealization of the church in the Bible. None. We've got 2,000 years of history now. Why are we so dumb? Why am I so dumb that I expect the church to be something it's not? Why can't I recognize that the trouble with the church is that it accepts sinners like me? If they excluded people who could ruin it, church might be a better place, but it would also be empty. As Peterson says, there's no other place to be a Christian. I may not like church, but it's where God wants me to be. And though I may be nothing more than dead wood in the pews, I'll still be there doing my part to protect the life of the church within. I think that sentiment says it all. Each person has a part to play when it comes to the church. And to blame the church or to say we're going to be a better church has nothing to do with how good your pastor is or how good the worship is. It has everything to do with how much you're willing to sell out and be a part of the church. To be a part of the living organism that you, that you now sit in front of. To build your foundation on the living rock, right? The chief cornerstone. And to be one of those pebbles that's fitted together that makes it strong like a fist. Instead of weak. So be encouraged today. We have that opportunity every day to make the church better, to make, be a better example of what it is to love Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity every day to make the church what it was meant to be. Let's pray, and the worship team will come up. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of what the church can be and that it's not far away from us. There's no special secret. It's not like it's Emerald's special sauce or something crazy. It's simple, Lord. It's about people believing in you and walking according to your word. It's about people living godly as you've called them to live and not expecting to be carried along, but to pull their weight, Lord, and to be about you 
and to live like you're coming. To live like the Messiah is coming again. Jesus, I pray this in your name and I lift up our congregation to you, Lord. May we serve you and be a church as, as you meant it to be. In your name.